Welcome to Spiritual Gold, the teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. I'm Dr. Mark Strauss, and these podcasts represent the faithful exposition of God's Word by my father through his 21-year ministry at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Our prayer is that through these messages, you would be encouraged and equipped in your walk with the Lord. To poets down through the centuries, life has been a mystery. One poet wrote, Life is a mystery as deep as ever death can be. Yet, oh, how sweet it is to us, this life we live and see. Not only to the poets, but to others as well. Found a quotation from Napoleon Bonaparte. He said, To explain what I am, where I came from, or whether I or whither I am going to is above my comprehension. Napoleon Bonaparte didn't know what life was all about. He couldn't figure it out, didn't know where he came from, where he was going, or why. The universe itself is a mystery. Scientists have been delving into the mysteries of the universe for generations. And hardly a day goes by, it seems, when they do not discover some new facet of our universe and unveil it for us to see and understand and make life more enjoyable here on earth. And once it's unveiled and exposed to view, it's no longer a mystery. To us, a mystery is something we don't understand. It's something that we cannot explain. It's beyond our human comprehension. That's what mystery means to the average person today. God reveals some mysteries in his word. As a matter of fact, there are approximately ten mysteries in the Bible. But contrary to what a mystery is to the human mind, to God it's something that's been revealed. A mystery is a secret that God has had for generations and ages past and now has revealed to believers. And even though it's been revealed and we can't understand it, he still calls it a mystery. Probably because of the depths of the truth of it all. But it's revealed. It's something we can understand. Hold your place now in Ephesians 3 before we begin to expound that passage. And turn back to Romans chapter 16. Where a divine mystery is explained to us. Romans 16 verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. That's the first part of a divine mystery. Was kept secret since the world began. But, verse 26, now is made manifest. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. A mystery is a secret that God has kept through the ages, but is now revealed, particularly to his own children. He says he made known to all nations, but for the purpose of bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. One of the most important mysteries in the Bible is the one revealed to us in Ephesians chapter 3. The great mystery of the body of Christ. Jew and Gentile, united together in one body. We saw this doctrine taught in chapter 2, where in verse 15 Paul said, God abolished 
in the flesh of Jesus Christ, the enmity between Jew and Gentile, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, to make in himself of the two, <coughs> Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace. Now he's going to expand on that mystery, the great mystery of Jew and Gentile in one body. In verses 1 to 6 of Ephesians 3, we learn the meaning of the mystery. In verses 7 to 13, Paul focuses in on his own role as the minister of the mystery. Ephesians 3.1 For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, dash. Does your Bible have a dash in it? Mine does. Paul is going to begin to pray. Most Bible commentators are convinced that verse 1 of chapter 3 is the beginning of a prayer. Only Paul gets sidelined from his prayer. Something he says in verse 1 gets his mind on that mystery. And he wants to expand it a little bit more. So he doesn't get to the prayer until we get down to verse 14. Notice the similarity. For this cause, that's the way he started verse 1. For this cause, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to pray again for the Ephesians as he prayed for them back in chapter 1. So we have a digression here that comes to Paul's mind from something he said in verse 1. For this cause, what causes that, Paul? Well, because you Gentiles are once afar off have been made near by the blood of Jesus Christ. The middle wall partition has been broken down and now... Of this Jew and Gentile. God has made one body. One new man. He's brought peace. By the blood of his cross. He's brought you together into one building. You're a temple that's growing. And is a habitation of God through the spirit. Because of all this. I want to pray something. Because of your position in Jesus Christ. I want to ask God to do something very specific. In your everyday practice and experience. We won't get to that. Well, next Sunday night, because Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus, for you Gentiles. Now, why should Paul mention the fact that he's a prisoner? Well, they'll mention it because it's hard to forget. At that very moment, he's sitting in a Roman prison. It may have been a hired house, but he had a guard. His freedom was limited. He was a prisoner of Rome. It's hard to forget that. When you're a prisoner, you talk about it. He says it again over in chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He's a prisoner, not of the Romans, but of the Lord. He's the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He is a prisoner of Rome because of his faith in Jesus Christ. So he's a voluntary prisoner. He didn't have to be there. He could have avoided being there, but he didn't. And that's what reminds him of what he wants to say, because he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. See, when Paul came to know Christ, God told him from the very beginning, all the way back in Acts chapter 9 at the Damascus Road experience, that he would carry the message of the gospel to Gentiles. And he did that. And he explained to Gentiles that they were one body with those Jews. They could come to know Jesus Christ and be heirs of God and join heirs with the Savior, with believing Jews. They would only trust Christ as their Savior. And of course, the Jews didn't like that. The believing Jews didn't even like it because they were prejudiced against Gentiles. But Paul kept on preaching that gospel. Gentiles trusted Christ as Savior, and that bothered the Jews too. And 
toward the end of his ministry, Paul went back into Jerusalem and on one occasion went up into the temple. While he was there, some Jews saw him there and they said, that's the fellow, that's the one who's been, who's been calling our law and our beliefs into disrepute. And they started a riot right there in the temple. And Paul had to be protected by the captain of the guard. And of course, one thing led to another and there was a succession of hearings before Roman officials and so finally, Paul, in order to save his life, had to appeal to Caesar. And that's why he was in Rome. He was a prisoner because of his commitment to tell the Gentiles about salvation in Jesus Christ. He could have compromised. He could have watered down the message. But God had revealed it to him and he couldn't compromise. He stood firm and he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And when he thinks about that. He wants to talk a little more about the mystery of Jew and Gentile in one body. Because that's very important to Paul. His whole life and ministry was centered around that great truth. So he wants to expand on it a little. It is the mystery. If you have heard, verse 2. If you have heard, assuming that you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me on your behalf. I assume that you have heard. That God has chosen me particularly to be the administrator of his grace to the Gentiles. The one who shares this message of his grace with Gentiles. That word dispensation is the Greek word oikonomia from which we get our English word economy. And it means basically an administration. The word literally means the law of the household. It was a word describing a person who administrated the affairs of a large household. And so it meant a stewardship, an administration. You have heard that God has committed to me the administration, the stewardship of his grace to Gentiles. I assume at any rate that you've heard that. He goes on to say. And then he says in verse three, how that by revelation, this message came to him by revelation. He made known to me the mystery there it is. That's what we're talking about in these verses tonight. The mystery. God told him this mystery. God revealed it to him. God made it known to him. He had already done so. And Paul had already explained it in many places. He says, as I wrote before in few words, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. God had given to Paul a unique understanding of this great truth that had been hidden from ages past. It was no secret that Gentiles would be saved. That wasn't the mystery. That had been revealed throughout the Old Testament. But it was a mystery that Jew and Gentile would be brought together in one body. And it was Paul who revealed that truth. Which, verse 5, in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. As it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. By his spirit. It wasn't made known in ages past. It's a mystery. You see. That's what a mystery is in the Bible. But is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. There are a couple, what I would consider to be erroneous doctrines that are taken from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5. Now keep in mind, please, that when I talk about these doctrines that I don't agree with, I'm not casting the people who believe them in any bad light whatsoever. They are fellow believers. They are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. They love the Lord Jesus. They've been saved by His grace. They share with others His redeeming grace. 
I'm not belittling them. I'm simply disagreeing with their doctrine. But there are some who believe that God is finished with the nation Israel, that there is no future for the nation Israel, that the church of Jesus Christ is really spiritual Israel and all the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament are now being fulfilled in the church. There will be no future literal kingdom on earth in which the nation Israel will play a prominent role and experience the literal promises God gave to her in the Old Testament. It's what is called theologically as ah millennialism. Ah meaning no. Millennialism, of course, meaning millennium, kingdom. No kingdom on earth. There's no need for one. God's finished with Israel. And they get it from this verse along with other things. I mean, this verse is used to support it along with other passages of Scripture which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. And it all hinges on a little word as. Because as you know, that could be used two different ways. That could mean it is not, or it was not known in ages past to the same degree that it is now known. It could mean that. Or it could mean it was not known in ages past, but is now revealed. The word as could be used in that sense as well. Which does it mean? The amillennialist means, says it means that, that this was really known in the Old Testament. The church of Jesus Christ is no mystery because it's simply the continuation of Israel. So, so it wasn't known to the same degree. We who believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to establish a literal kingdom on earth in which the nation Israel will play a prominent role think that the word means but... It is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. And there are some other passages of scripture, I think, that would substantiate that interpretation. For instance, right over in verse 9 of this chapter, it says, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages hath been hidden in God. doesn't say it was partially hidden. doesn't say it showed through just a little bit. It says it was hidden. It was something that was unknown in the Old Testament. This mystery was in truth a mystery. It was unknown. If you hold your place in Ephesians and go over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 26. Where the basically same mystery is talked about. It's the mystery of Christ in you Gentiles, the hope of glory. That Gentiles would experience the indwelling Christ and therefore be united together in one body. But in verse 26 it says, Even the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. There's only one way to understand that verse. The as could be understood as either to the, not the same degree or not at all known in ages past. But Colossians 1.26 can only mean one thing. It was a mystery. It was totally unknown, but is now revealed. The church of Jesus Christ is something. The church of Jesus Christ composed of Jew and Gentile in one body is something that was unknown in Old Testament times. There's another doctrine based on Ephesians 3.5 which I think gets some believers sidetracked and poses a problem. Actually, it's not based on Ephesians 3.5. It's answered in Ephesians 3.5. It's based on the verses that precede. It is the doctrine that teaches that the church of Jesus Christ did not begin until the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It didn't begin on the day of Pentecost, as we believe it did. 
They say it began with Paul's ministry. Consequently, all the New Testament epistles that were written before Paul are not for us. They just kind of put them aside and say they're not epistles for us, so we don't study them, we don't worry about them. They don't have anything for us. Only the later Pauline epistles are for us. They don't believe in baptism or the Lord's Supper because they believe that they're not found in Paul's later epistles. And the church didn't begin till later. That it was a distinctive revelation to Paul and therefore it couldn't begin until Paul was well into his ministry. I don't think the scripture teaches that. In fact, Ephesians 3, 5 would dispute it. This doctrine was not revealed only to Paul. It was revealed in a distinctive and unique way to Paul, but not only to Paul. He says it was revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by his spirit. It was revealed to others as well. Prophets and apostles, plural, not just to Paul. Of course, there are other answers to that doctrine. The thing that matters is not when it was revealed, but when God started to do something different. And it's quite clear that God began to start something different on the day of Pentecost. That's the day he baptized believers into one body. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. So that's the day the church began. When it was revealed is another story. It really makes a little difference when God explained to men what he was doing. What really matters is when did God do it? And God did it. On the day of Pentecost, that's the birthday of the church. That's when the body of Christ began. But when we get to verse 6, Paul really gets down to explaining the mystery for us. It is. All these other verses have been introductory. It is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That is, with equal position. Same rights and privileges. And of the same body, fellow members of the body, just as near to God as any believing Jew could be. And partakers of the same promise in Christ by the gospel. Heirs of eternal salvation. Just as much as any believing Jew could be. We stand together. The mystery is. That in Jesus Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. They may have some national blood flowing through their veins. But in God's sight it makes no difference at all what they are. Jew or Gentile. In Christ they are one. They are equal. They have an equal standing before God. They have the same rights and privileges. The same promises. The same blessings. They are one in Him. doesn't say the Gentiles are made Jews. We talked about that last Sunday night. Back in chapter 2 and verse 15, God made of the two, Jew and Gentile, one new entity, the body of Christ. Now, it was the Jews in Jesus or in Paul's day that needed this exhortation because they were prejudiced against the Gentiles. They thought they were of lesser importance in God's sight than they, the Jews, were. I would say today the tables have turned and the exhortation needs to go in the other direction because in many cases it's believing Gentiles who who look down on Jews and feel that they are lesser members of the body of Christ. I find, even in fundamental Christian circles, an unbelievable amount of anti-Semitism. It's something I absolutely cannot begin to fathom. But it's there, and we need to deal with it. In Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile are one. They are fellow heirs of the same body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ by the gospel. That's the meaning of the mystery. We're one in him. When we reach chapter 7, Paul begins to focus in on his role as the minister of the mystery. He says, of which I am made a minister. According to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. 
God bestowed on me, Paul says, the great blessing and gift of sharing this good news with Gentiles. And he considered it a gift. And he carried that ministry on by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his own strength. He says, I was made a minister of this mystery according to the gift of God's grace. It was Paul's privilege to be in the ministry. I consider it to be a privilege too. I've said many, many times over that I consider the job that I have to be the most enviable position a believer could ever be in. Where I get paid for studying God's word and sharing it with others. I mean, that has to be one of the greatest opportunities and privileges ever afforded a human being. And I thank God for that privilege. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. I don't feel that I'm qualified to, to do it as capably as God wants me to do it. But God's allowed me that privilege and I thank him for it. I feel much like Paul does. I've been made a mystery according to the gift of the grace of God. Totally undeserved, but the gift of his grace. And I want to carry on my ministry the same way Paul did. He said, by the effectual working of his power. Not through any abilities Paul possessed, but through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's an interesting statement, the effectual working of his power. Actually, two... The two words effectual working are just one word in the Greek text. It's the word energeia from which we get our word energy. The energy of his, and that's the word dunamis from which we get our word dynamite. There's a lot of energy in dynamite, folks. And Paul says he carries on his ministry by the energy of God's dynamite. And Paul had a powerful ministry. And I covet that for our ministry at Emmanuel Faith. That we work not through any innate abilities or human gifts or abilities, but through the power that God alone can supply. And I love the attitude of the Apostle Paul. This is why God used him with such power. He gave this grace, this ministry unto me, he says, verse 8, who am less than the least of all saints. Unto me, the less, less than the least is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable Riches of Christ. He has the unspeakable privilege of telling Gentiles about what they can have in Jesus Christ. The riches that are theirs in him. Riches so deep. So vast. So unending. That were we to spend a lifetime exploring them, we would still never be able to comprehend all that Jesus Christ has done for us. The unsearchable riches of Christ. God has given that privilege, Paul says to me who am less than the least of all saints. That's actually one word in the Greek text, less than the least. Paul takes the word that means the least. And he wants us to know that as far as he's concerned, he's less than that. So he coins a word. Carried over into English, it would probably have to come out something like the leastest. And there is no word like that. He said, I who am the leaster or the leastest of all saints... Is this grace given? What utter humility. The Apostle Paul surely didn't think more of himself than God wanted him to think. And that's the kind of man God uses. God did use Paul. And I think one reason God used him is because he saw himself in a true light. He saw himself as incapable, apart from divine power, to carry on the ministry God had committed to him. There's been some other great men through the years who have been men of humility like this. One was Hudson Taylor. 
The medical doctor went to China, became the founder of the China Inland Missions, which is now the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. A man whom God used to introduce the gospel of that land and to really pioneer to some degree the whole modern missionary movement. At one point in his life, somebody came to him and said, Dr. Taylor, don't you feel tempted sometimes to be proud because of the things God has done through you and the honors that you have received? He said, on the contrary, I often think that God must have been looking for someone small enough and weak enough for him to use. And he found me. That's the kind of person God uses, you see. Small enough and weak enough. And then Dr. Taylor referred to Zechariah 4, 6. That great verse that Zechariah penned in time of great stress in his life. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. A.B. Simpson, a great expositor of God's word, said, Humility will save you from self-consciousness. It will take away from you the shadow of yourself and the constant sense of your own importance. It will save you from self-assertion and from thrusting your own personality upon the thoughts and attention of others. It will save you from the desire for display, from being prominent, from occupying the center of the stage, from being the object of observation, attention, and having the eyes of the world turned upon you. It's a good quote. Humility. What a beautiful grace. Humble people are the kind of people God uses. But then Paul goes on to reveal to us the passion of his life. It was, verse 9, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages hath been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. God the Creator, who brought the body into being, has committed to me the responsibility and the privilege of helping all men to see what is the fellowship of this mystery, that we are one in Jesus Christ, that we've been united together in Him, in one body, one in a bond of love. And Paul's passion was to proclaim that mystery. And he tells us God's purpose for proclaiming that mystery. It is verse 10 to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church, the body of Christ, the manifold wisdom of God. It's interesting. God's power is seen in creation. God's grace is seen in redemption. But God's wisdom is seen in the church. It is wisdom for God to bring Jew and Gentile together in one body. To break down all distinctions, all differences, and view everybody as one in Jesus Christ. We studied that back in the book of Galatians, you remember. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Oh, there is an order of authority in every sphere of life. But in God's sight, we are all viewed as absolutely equal. We are one in Him. All differences have been obliterated. We are one in the bond of love. We are in Jesus Christ, and all walls of partition have been broken down. And that's wise. God is now revealing that in Him there is oneness and unity and harmony and love. 
There are no national or racial or political or physical or social distinctions in the church of Jesus Christ. In the body of Christ, they've all been broken down. We are one in him. And that's God's purpose to reveal that to angelic beings as well as to a lost world. These principalities and powers in heavenly places are probably angelic beings, maybe good angels, maybe evil fallen angels. But they can see in the church the many colored, the variegated wisdom of God. The church reveals the wisdom of God. Verse 12, in whom? Or excuse me, verse 11. He tells us the purpose for this program. The basis for the whole program is God's eternal purpose. Which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And of course, we know what that purpose is. It's repeated in several passages of Scripture. It is to bring glory to himself. What God is doing on the earth today, by bringing Jew and Gentile and all believers together in one body, without distinction, in unity and harmony, he's doing to glorify himself. That's the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus it's his purpose. So now he can empower us and he can embolden us to share with a lost world what God is doing and what's been offered to them, the unsearchable riches that can be theirs in Jesus Christ, the eternal riches that are theirs by faith in him. We can get that power from the Lord himself. Verse 12 tells us, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. We come to him boldly. Because this is his plan, it's his program, it's for his purpose. And we can come into his presence where we find acceptance and where we can obtain the confidence and power we need to carry on God's program. And sometimes we may suffer for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we do, Paul looks on that as a privilege. He says in verse 13, Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. It's a joy for me to be able to suffer on your behalf, Paul says. It's a privilege for me. And it's really your glory that I've been privileged to suffer to bring you the gospel. And even now I'm in bonds, is really what he's saying to us, for the privilege of preaching to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And someday we may be called on to suffer for the privilege of sharing the gospel. The day may come and we will be forbidden to talk about our faith. But we'll have to do it. If we, if we are obedient Christians, we will have to do it. And if we suffer for it, then we will consider privilege. And the glory of those for whom we have shared Jesus Christ. Well, God had a secret. It's no secret anymore. It's been revealed now. It is that believers are one. And we need to show that oneness. We need to reveal to a lost world we are one. And we do that by our love. May God help us to learn what it means to love one another. To bear one another's burdens. To care for one another in our needs. To minister to one another in our times of suffering as well as sharing one another's joys. And demonstrate to the world around us that we are one. In a bond of love. They won't be able to figure it out. To them it's still a mystery. But it will impress them. And in all probability it will draw them to Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are one in the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to manifest that oneness through a deep and sensitive love one for another. That the world may know that Jesus Christ is our living Redeemer who brings all believers together into one body and breaks down all distinctions and binds them together in love. We ask it in His name who provided for us this oneness, even our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message by Dr. Richard L. Strauss. Copyright 2021, Spiritual Gold, Inc. All rights reserved. For more on this ministry and for additional resources, be sure to visit spiritualgold.org.